0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching text comes from Acts 10:36 through 43. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross
1: Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Happy Easter. I'm so glad that we're together today. I don't know if you're here and this is your church community and you're among friends or maybe you're in a room full of strangers, which can be a little bit unnerving. I don't know if if, uh, you walk in and you're feeling encouraged and upbeat or maybe you're coming in discouraged and life has been really hard and you feel like you've been limping through it, you know, literally or figuratively. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently and completely disagree with us. I don't think that anybody is here by mistake today. I think the Holy Spirit has been at work drawing you in toward Christian community and toward uh, Jesus himself. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus, you are welcome and you are wanted, and I'm really glad that we're together. So in our text today, this is the Apostle Peter, and he's having one of those moments where it's like, oh my gosh, something special is happening. And you know those moments in life where you feel like as you're going through it, you know this is one of those moments I'm going to remember forever. And going back to those moments, whether they were 5 or 10 or 20 years ago, you can still replay the whole thing beat by beat. And Peter is sitting in this room with Cornelius, but in his mind, he's flashing back to everything that's happened over the last three or so years. He had been a fisherman until the day that Jesus called him to be a disciple, an unlikely call because of who Peter was. He travels with Jesus for three years. It culminates in this holy week in Jerusalem where Jesus, against their expectations, even though he warned them, was crucified, publicly humiliated, executed, buried, and then he was raised to life again. For 40 days, he appeared to the disciples and to to great masses, and then he ascended into heaven. And 40 days after that, Peter was together with 119 or so other believers in an upper room waiting because Jesus said to wait. And on that day, the Holy Spirit fell on Peter and actually on the whole church and something they didn't see coming began to happen. They were those people who had been timid were suddenly anointed with power, and on that day, the church grew from 120 believers to 3,000. You fast forward a short period of time, and, and there's this guy named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile, but he fears God and he gives gifts to the poor. He, he cares for the things of God. And one day he's sleeping and, and he has this dream and an angel comes to him and says, I want you to send for this guy named Peter who's staying in a town called Joppa. And so immediately uh, Cornelius sends his messengers ahead. Well, the next day around noon, Peter is sitting around the house and he's getting a little drowsy and he falls asleep and he himself has a dream. And at the tail end of that dream, God says, open the door, Peter. And then the door begins to knock. It's like that scene in the matrix where he gets the message, follow the white rabbit. And then the girl with the white rabbit tattoo shows up at his house And it's these messengers from Cornelius saying, like, this sounds crazy, but our boss said to send for you because he had a dream. You won't believe it. I just had a dream. And Peter goes and follows the men. Peter finds himself in a room full of Gentiles, something that was not permitted to happen for a Jewish person like Peter. But God said to go, and he went, and he finds himself in this crowded room, and they say, tell us about everything you experienced with Jesus. And Peter just begins to share what he'd been through. And in that moment, Peter's life experiences began to turn into what's called kerygma. Charisma is just the stuff that Christians preach about. For him, it wasn't like abstract ideology. Peter was just sharing, here's what I've been through. Here's my life experiences. And in time, Peter's kerygma would help make sense of the life experience of countless millions who had come to follow Jesus for themselves. Now, if you paid attention to the text, what was Peter's charisma? What was the stuff that he preached? It was in the text that we just read in Acts chapter 10. A very simple sermon. Four points. The first point was, one, God anointed Jesus to do good, to go out and heal people, to announce freedom for those who are in captivity to the devil, point number one. Point number two of his sermon, we saw it, they killed him, God raised him. Third point of the sermon is now he's the one. He's the one who's gonna like put back all of creation together. He's the one that God has handpicked to judge the living and the dead. And then the fourth point of the sermon is everyone who trusts in him receives forgiveness of sins. There's not a funny intro, he doesn't use a poem, he just gets to the four points. And what's so telling is the story speaks for itself. And we see it in the response of these Gentile believers in verse 44 of chapter 10. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fell on those Jewish believers who were gathered together. And now this is a kind of Gentile Pentecost. Where they're hearing the message, the charisma of Jesus Christ that Peter's life experiences, and the Spirit fell on them in such a way that like strange things started to happen, like they began to speak in other languages that they didn't previously know. And you look at the content of the sermon and you think, how did that message make that happen? On the one hand Peter's charisma makes no sense. Peter's preaching, the stuff he talked about doesn't make a whole lot of sense. First because it's so specific. It's so particular. God sent Jesus uh, he sent one message to one ethnic group through one guy from Nazareth of all places. I think that might be saying like like Turley or from the you know the, the Texas panhandle or like Sorry for you Texas people or Turley people, I don't know if Turley people are here. <laughs> but one guy, you know, speaking to one ethnic group, one guy from Nazareth who just happens to be one more person executed by the Romans, and now we need him to forgive our sins? You think that's quite a leap. How did that message work? The second reason that the charisma is preaching makes no sense is because it's so oddly universal. How does what happened to one guy in Judea 2,000 years ago have any bearing on life for, for those of us who live 2,000 years later? It reminds me of a story that the BBC reported about this wealthy aristocrat from Portugal who nearing the time of his death decided he wanted to do something a little uncommon. So sitting with his attorney, he took a phone book and he picked 70 random people in the phone book and decided that they were going to be his sole heirs of everything that he owned. None of them knew this man, none of them had ever heard of this man, and yet when he died, they inherited everything, these 70 random people from the phone book. And nearly all of them, the story was the same as they took the call from the attorney. They're just sure this is a scam, just like all of us have gotten the emails that were related to this Nigerian prince, and they just need our accounts, and they'll wire the money. They're like, this is surely a scam. Who does that? Why would I benefit of all people? Why does his death mean my profit? And the one thing that makes sense out of the gift is the will of the giver. It was the intention of the giver that it go down this way. This is how he wanted it to be. And similarly, Jesus came and he preached the good news of the kingdom and he did good and he died mysteriously naming as his beneficiaries those who had killed him and those who had denied him and those who didn't know him and those who didn't believe in him. It makes no sense. On the other hand, Peter's kerygma, a message about the forgiveness of sins, actually makes perfect sense. Now, sin is an idea that's talked about less and less these days, and the recovering Presbyterians in our church tell me that I don't talk about sin nearly enough. To some people, sin feels like an antiquated term that harkens back to, you know, shame-based abusive religious subcultures. Or to some, the principal sins these days are challenging or questioning anyone's self-expression or perhaps the sins of institutions. And some think that the, the concept of teaching people about personal sin is tantamount to just calling them terrible human beings and maybe even borders on hate speech. They think that we need to retire the concept of sin and instead tell people that they're perfect as they are and they're capable of anything. But this message, too, is problematic. John Dixon, in his book, Bullies and Saints, said, I had an interesting conversation with a journalist from Australia's national broadcaster. He told me he liked some of the ethical teachings of Jesus, the bits about love and peace, but he was deeply wary of any talk of human guilt and divine mercy. He worried this could crush the human spirit, especially in children. They would grow up, he feared, in a cloud of guilt that obscured their abilities and intrinsic value. He preferred the notion that we all have within us everything we need to live honorable lives. I explained that I actually think the shoe is on the other foot. Imagine growing up in a family where the expectation is that you are good through and through. You'll make the starting lineup You will always stay out of trouble, you will get straight A's at school, and quickly repair any personal failures. I suggested that this was a recipe for crushing a child's spirit. Such a performance-based mentality where worth is tied to achievement cannot prepare us for the inevitable failures of life. Much better, it seems to me, is to raise our children in the full knowledge of their gifts and their flaws and in the knowledge that they are loved regardless of their performance. Christ did not teach, says Dixon, that we're hopeless failures destined only to be immoral, but he did insist that recognizing our flawed humanity is the first step towards seeking his kingdom. Adopting this outlook is like growing up in a family that simultaneously has high hopes for you. Who could deny Christ's high hopes for Christians but a family that also trains you from the outset to acknowledge your faults and to trust that your membership in the family depends on love, not on achievement. Some of you have heard me before, and I actually got in trouble for it a little bit, of uh, friend, no, who was it? Francis Spewford, who kind of rebranded sin in a way that perhaps secular people could more readily understand. He talked about sin as the human propensity to screw things up let the reader understand, (laughs) the human propensity to screw things up. I would contend that Peter's preaching and Dixon's take on the value of teaching people about the reality of sin and Spuford's idea that sin is the human propensity to screw things up actually jives with lived human experience. That we know, if we're really honest, that we do have good instincts, we have positive potential, and we also have destructive capacity that many of us, that all of us in one way or another, big or little, have realized. And we can see that we habitually make a mess of our lives that we as individuals and as the human race cannot undo and cannot rectify. Uh, the Anglican Catechesis brings us seven questions that I think begin to tie together a lot of this conversation. The, the first one, which I think is profound the, the more you meditate on it, is simply, what is the human condition? Now, I want you to appreciate the scope of this question. Think about all of human history, all of the people that are alive right now, and trying to, to, to make sense of what happened. What is the human condition? It answers, though created good and made for fellowship with our Creator. Humanity has been cut off from God by self-centered rebellion against Him, leading to lawless living, guilt, shame, death, and the fear of judgment. It says, this is the state of sin. Now you think about your lived experience and you think about the world and you think, does the shoe not fit here? Yes, we we are made in the image of God. Even people who don't believe in Him are made in His image and at times can't help but show it off. But we also see that by putting ourselves at the center of the universe, the consequence has been that we have hurtled out of orbit away from the life that we were meant for. And this is empirically verifiable. I was, I was really grieved uh, reading the Tulsa World this week and, and checking out uh, the local news this week at I felt like more and more and more stories of people harming children. As a parent, you don't do that. Who would do that? Thousands of people. How does that happen? I don't know how it happened. Once I was going to TulsaWorld.com and I I typed an M after Tulsa instead of a W and I ended up at TulsaMugs.com. I've seen several of you on there. (laughs) Now, it actually, it it shows like the people who've been arrested in the last day and the number of people who've been arrested because of things related to methamphetamines or crimes in order to pay for for all kinds of drugs and, and oh gosh. think about uh, those of us in this room who've been deeply hurt by the people close to us breaking their promises, or we've broken promises and we've inherited deep shame and guilt as a result of that. How many of us have secret lives or secret search histories that if they were exposed would ruin us We think about the broken institutions and how they've failed us. We think about the reality of war. Just this morning, I read in the war that Russia's doubling down on taking the city of Kiev. Many of us have been affected or been victims or perpetrators of racism, of adultery. We have deep confusion about our identity. So many people are just mean and tribalistic, and we see that we have gone out of orbit from the life that we were meant to inherit. A songwriter said, the fall, the fall, oh God, the fall of man. The fruit is found in every eye and every hand. Nothing, there is nothing left in truest form. We walk like ghosts upon the earth, the ground it groans. How long? This message is not just a theory. The gospel in real life teaches that the human propensity to screw things up, that sin is real, that it's consequential. The lessons in catechesis go on. The second question is, how does sin affect you? That propensity that each of us have to self-destruct and to hurt other people, how does that affect you? Well, sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation and myself. Apart from Christ, I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, when the, the first humans rebel against God's intention, immediate alienation between Adam and Eve, the woman you sent me, There's distance between them. There's there's distance between them and God's good creation, their own bodies. They feel a sense of shame or estrangement within their own bodies. There's estrangement between them and and the the whole ecosystem, and estrangement between them and God. Sin brings this alienation. So many of you have strained relationships right now, or, or even perhaps in the church, you wonder, oh, I kind of hope I don't end up at the same service as that person because things are a little awkward right now. How does sin affect you? It alienates. It says we're walking in the way of death. The third question goes on to ask, what is the way of death? The way of death is a life without God's love and Holy Spirit. A life controlled by things that cannot bring me eternal joy, leading only to darkness, misery, and eternal condemnation. Some of you have people that you love dearly who are walking in the way of death right now that are making choices to compensate for the fact that they do not have God's love as an anchor for their souls, that they're not being guided by the Holy Spirit and their best thinking is leading them into the gutter or leading them into hopelessness, darkness. It's the way of death. Now, maybe you'd say, we're managing just fine, but we certainly can't fix this problem. And I think if you think you're managing, you're bluffing. Uh, John Moreland, who's a songwriter from Tulsa, who's really, really great, says, I got years worth of work, and I'm running low on tools. The fourth question asks, do you have the power to save yourself from sin and death? This is the one that carries some of the most explanatory power that I've shared with you before. It says, no, I do not have the power to save myself. For sin has corrupted my conscience and confused my mind and captured my will. Only God can save me. Paul says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, I do that instead. Some of us make choices and we look back and we think, why did I do that? It made sense at the time. But my mind is confused. I knew it was the right thing to do, but I still didn't choose it. My conscience has been corrupted. Now, some would say, I don't believe that anymore, but I would just ask you to consider, does it not carry some major explanatory power for where the whole human experience is right now? We were created good, but something happened. We opened Pandora's box, and now we can't close it. And onto the scene comes Jesus, who teaches that a new kingdom is here and forgiveness is available. And we return to the simple charisma, the simple teaching about Jesus and his kingdom. The next question asks, What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world. And some need to hear that again. The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. In view of everything that we've done to the world that He created, God loves the world. While we were at our worst, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The next question asks, how does God save you? says, God forgives my sins and reconciles me to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He has given to the world as an undeserved gift of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. We need to be forgiven and we want to be forgiven because we need a way to help us deal with our shame. We need a way of finding hope that the world has grown increasingly hopeless. We are expert hiders and expert deniers. We need intervention. Why does God save you? Because He loves me. He saves me from sin and judgment so that I may love and serve Him for His glory. I have had, it's been meaningful for me just reflecting on that first phrase. What is His motivation in His posture toward me? What's the thing, what's the thing that animates uh, the, the intervention that is the incarnation of Jesus? It's because He loves me. You have perhaps heard very different messages about the nature of Christianity, the nature of the gospel, but these words cover it quite well. Because He loves me, He intervened. The Christian message has picked up a lot of baggage over the years, over our lifetimes. The kerygma, the teaching of the, the church of, of Jesus has been turned into a message of moralism. It's come with a culture code and a dress code and a political purity test. Believers have too often behaved in ways that are judgmental and self-righteous and mean. And when compared to the simple kerygma about Jesus, you see that it's like a 2,000-year game of telephone that has gone awry. It bears some resemblance to the original message, but boy, has it also changed over the years and worst of all, the church. How royally and spectacularly we have failed over the years. How we have abused power, how we have exploited the vulnerable, how people like me who wear microphones on their faces have sought to use the church as a platform for their own self-expression or as a a means of making a name for themselves instead of building the kingdom. John Dixon, who I mentioned earlier, chronicles in his book, Bullies and Saints, the best and perhaps especially the worst of the church through its history. And in spite of all the evidence, all of the reasons one might think he would have given up the church, he remains hopeful because he says that in every generation, and especially at those times when the depravity of the church is on its fullest display, that there is a self-correcting instinct within Christianity that kicks in. That even at moments that it's darkest God keeps a remnant, a light, burning, women and men who hearken back to the simple charisma, the simple message of the gospel that is far from simplistic. And they unburden the message from some of its cultural trappings and with humility acknowledge that there is a problem with the human experiment. Something has gone so very wrong, and it's us. We've rebelled against God and we are reaping the consequences and there's only one who can save us. We confess that into the hopelessness and the darkness we see that Jesus Christ has come and injected worth into a world that has lost its value. He's come and he's he's born truth in a world that is believing lies bringing life into a world that is careening toward death, and to people who are so very lost, he offers them a way when he says, come and follow me. Come, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and in me you will find rest for your souls." Jesus died for our forgiveness. So our shame could be lifted like providing garments for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. The cross of Jesus Christ covers our shame, restores our dignity. He died for our forgiveness, but he lives that we may find a new life now with him in, in the present age and in the age to come. And Christ, who was risen those 2,000 years ago, is now seated in his body at the right hand of his Father, and he is pulling for you, and He is pulling for me, and He's pulling for those people that you hate. And on Easter, a time that it could be so easy to tune out and the familiar message we would hold in contempt because we think we've heard it all, we're invited to see Him again as He is. Why does He save us? It is because He loves us. And we're invited once again to turn, perhaps for the first time, to the gospel, but perhaps for many more of us to return to the simple and particular message of Jesus who became incarnate and lived and preached His message of the kingdom, calling people to repent and to pledge allegiance to His kingdom and to renounce claim on any others, to follow Him, to learn how to be well, to learn how to be wise, and to learn to live as ambassadors in His kingdom. Today, we're invited again to repent, and to believe the gospel, and to trust that He is the one whom God has appointed to put all things back together. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, so that in Him He might have the supremacy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I find these messages the most difficult to preach, and they may perhaps be the most difficult to listen to as well. Because many of us have heard the story so many times that we're inoculated against it. And some of us, as a wise person said, the unmotivated are, are invulnerable to insight. Some of us are so tired and bored in our life with You that we no longer really want to learn And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do what we cannot do, that you would open up our ears and open up our hearts and open up our minds to be touched and transformed again by the beauty of the gospel and the good news of Him who loves us. I pray that you would give us the grace to be realistic with ourselves about our sin, but let us not be given into despair and hold on to hope and remember that with you there is forgiveness of sins. With you, no one's too far off. I pray, Lord Jesus, for all in this room, for those especially who've never trusted you with their whole life, that whether it's this morning or in the car or sometime later, they would just feel this compulsion to fall to their knees and proclaim that Jesus is Lord, to trust that you're the only one who can forgive us and to put us back together and to give us a future characterized by hope. And for the rest of us, Lord Jesus, who are perhaps walking with you or trying to or want to try to, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us that we might hear And believe and once again pick up our cross and follow. Just say if there's anyone in the room who's never trusted in Christ for salvation, in a minute as you come and receive communion, just tell him you want his help. Ask him to intervene in your life. Jesus, I, I need your help. I've made a mess of things. Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you adopt me into your family? And for all of us who just need, maybe we just need to say it again, Lord, I'm trusting in you again. I've been trusting in myself to be good enough or moral enough or right enough, but I'm trusting in you to piece me back together. God, give us each of us the grace to turn and to return to the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone.